good to be together as God's children meeting in this location. Stop and think for a few moments this morning of all the other believers meeting in all the other places, hearing similar truths, opening up the same book, desiring to know more of the Savior, more of God, and more of His character. We're a part of that, and we thank the Lord, not just for our local assembly, for our local church, but for what God is doing all over the place. It's called the Church Universal. We're thankful for that. I hope that you're mindful of that. There are other believers calling out, struggling as we do, rejoicing as we do, thanking as we do, and we're a part of that. We're in Luke chapter 19 this morning, Luke chapter 19, returning to a well-known Palm Sunday passage, looking for a key insight, looking to change, looking to progress as pilgrims of, of the way. Luke chapter 19, I'm beginning to read at 28. We jump in the midst of a narrative from given to us from the hand of God the Spirit's work as he carries along Dr. Luke. And in verse 28, we read this. When he had said this, that's Jesus, he's just given a lesson on stewardship. It's been a stern lesson. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. Came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. Then I ask you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall save him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. They brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. As he went, many spread their clothes in the road. Then as he was now drawn near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes will come upon you when your enemies will build up the embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they shall leave in you one stone. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Father, come now and help us promise to give wisdom to those that ask, and so we come gathering here in this place asking 
Father, we pray for insight. We pray for food for our souls. We pray for strength in our journeys. We pray for joy. We pray for understanding. We pray for discernment. We pray, Lord God, that you'll be acting on this. Not enough to simply hear. We want to be doers of your word as well to help us, Lord. Meet your people in our varied needs, varied seasons of life, even with our varied deficits, Lord. Father, I pray that you would be profoundly the provider that only you can be, and that we recognize it, that we rejoice in it. Father, if there is the need for adjustment and conviction, change, repentance, we would plead for that as well. Pray, Lord God, that your word would be for us both bitter and sweet. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the season of the year. We pray that we would do well in loving our neighbors. We thank you, Lord God, that you you love people in Tanzania and in West Europe. We thank you, Lord God, for this missionary couple and their family. We pray your rich blessings upon them. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to be together. To hear your still small voice. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. On Sunday is a study in contrasts. Even as I read the text to you this morning, there's probably some questions popping off in your mind. There is an element of triumph, but there's also an element of tension. There are cheers, but there's also a coldness. There's air and truth, praise and prejudice. Messianic expectations run high in ancient Jerusalem. The masses of Jews that have assembled crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save. Deliverance is in the air. There is a longing for rescue, for the restoration of all things. And as they cry out, we cry out. Because that's a very normal, natural human desire. Oh, save. We want to be restored. We want to be free from suffering. We want to stop groaning. We want restoration. And so if we see those cry out on that day, we sense in our own hearts the similitude, the connection between the two. As they cry out, we cry out. That's our longing. But over the years, I have struggled with the term triumphal entry. Of Jesus Christ is still in front of him. We know from the rest of the gospel record that there is a conspiracy to destroy him, to silence him forever, they think. That's boiling beneath the surface, even of the greenery. And so this morning I want us to, for a few moments, travel back to ancient Jerusalem to track the movement, to understand the motive of our rescuer. Jesus' entrance raises a number of significant questions as we read the text together. There's a few. Maybe these are the questions that you have. They are the ones that I did. What is the importance of his arrival? Why does it, if you will, go down this way? Why does Luke devote an entire paragraph to acquiring a donkey and its fold? Why the incredible contrast between the joyful praise of the crowds and Jesus weeping? I mean, he celebrate and he cries. Something is afoot. The entrance seems triumphal, but 
just so different. As amazed again this week by both his majesty and on a certain level his misery. Because you see in the text both of those. It reminded me of Isaiah the prophet who prophesied hundreds of years earlier that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For surely we see it here in the text. I think if we miss the details, we end up waving palms without understanding. And you know that palms without understanding will basically just wither and brown and they have no meaning. And so we want to understand the narrative. We want to understand it and affirm what it is that God is doing. If you've ever been to the taping of a television show, you know that at some point, as the part of the audience, there is a sign or a placard that is held up, and it says, applause, you're supposed to clap. Why are we supposed to clap and affirm? What is it that we're supposed to understand? I think the details of the text grip with meaning, and so I'll give you three markers as we navigate the narrative. First of all, in verses 28 to 34, notice the ride of the king, or the ride for the king. What's significant about acquiring the donkey? Is this valuable? Well, I think that's a great question. Have you ever been around someone who gives you too many details? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, you. Apart from that, you ever been around someone and like, their rabbit trails have rabbit trails? And they're starting to tell the story, and it's all of this color commentary. And ultimately, they get so far away from the main thing and the plain thing, you just get lost in the weeds. And maybe, just maybe, some of us bring that kind of thought to the Word of God and say, well, this is a, this is a useless detail. What, what, what is this about? Well, the reality for us, says the people of the book, is that there are no wasted details, there are no rabbit trails in the Word of God. This is a love letter that has importance for us for all times. Glorious and delicious and clear and vibrant and bold. We don't always understand the details, but they're never there purposelessly. There's always some meaning. We just struggle to understand it. So after this stern lesson on discipleship, chapter 19, 12 to 27, Jesus turns abruptly on his heels when he heads up to Jerusalem. And these are not throwaway details. God has chosen Jerusalem as an important place geographically. He has purposed that he would fulfill the great work begun in Genesis 3, the crushing of the head of the serpent. That he would fulfill that great first Good news, Proton Uendelion, first good news that it would be fulfilled here in Jerusalem. And so it's significant that Jesus makes his way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the past, the seat of David's throne, and Luke's gospel, the capital of Israel, and the future that plays a part in the formation of God's kingdom. Jesus clearly identifies Jerusalem as the place where he will be rejected, the place where he will suffer, the place where he will die, and the place where he will arise. It is on his agenda. It's a part of his daytime. And throughout the Gospels, we see him say that. He says that plainly, clearly, amazingly, this group of men that are following behind him, never seen before, come in. 
see someone coming into your driveway, I keep because you live in West Florida, the keys are in the vehicle. Um, you're climbing in your car, you go out and say, hey, what's up? And they say, well, the Lord has need of it. How are you going to feel about that? A little strange? A little nervous, maybe? I think so. We have amazingly the concept of Lord, from this perspective, that's enough. And it brought him, it tells us, in 35 to Jesus. In the process of celebration, they threw their clothes on the call and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, 36 says, many spread their clothes on the road. These owners, no matter how uninformed or simple they may have been, understood the concept of the Lord. The master. There's something glorious about that. I'm amazed throughout the Gospels that Jesus has chosen to borrow what he already owns. A little perspective. He's born, borrowed bloom, borrowed stable, no home of his own, Luke 9 tells us, no means of support. He even will be buried in a borrowed tomb, according to Luke. The issue of ownership is an interesting issue, and it's one that we struggle with even today. Yet, yet we have been bought with a price we are not our own. We struggle with that because somehow, lurking deep in the recesses of our mind, we think, well, this is my stuff. This is, these are, these are my things. This is my body. This is my time. This is my agenda. This is mine. We have to come back to a simple basis like that and here, the Lord has need of it. Actually, we're the borrowers. It all belongs to Him. Ultimately, everything belongs to Him. He calls us to release to Him what's already His. It becomes an act of worship for us. The part of what He's entrusted to us, we lay it back at His feet. This becomes an exercise good for our souls. Tithing and giving and loving and caring and serving, good for our souls. It's an act of worship. These owners, simple as they may have been, understand that. Hey, brothers and sisters, do you understand that? Do you believe he has a right to lay claim to everything that you are and everything that you have? Don't miss the extravagant devotion here. Acknowledge him as Lord. We use that kind of language. We use it often. Yet, as we use it, do we mean it? Do we really mean it? And I'm not often that one of the depths of what we sometimes find as our own dilemma, and he does it with precise wit. You ever thought like this? Although you want me to go, dear Lord, real service is what I desire. Sing you a solo any time, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in choir. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I'd like to see things come to pass, but don't ask me to teach boys and girls, dear Lord. I'd rather just stay in my class. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for my kingdom to thrive. I'll give you my nickels and dimes, dear Lord, but don't ask me to tithe. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. Busy just now with myself, dear Lord. I'll help you some other day. 
is not an inch of any sphere of life of which Jesus Christ the Lord does not say mind. You've heard it before. So, so necessary, so needful for us to preach to ourselves. There's nothing in any sphere of life over which God does not say mind that belongs to me. Christ comes offering this opportunity to serve Brothers and sisters, take the opportunities that our culture presents to us in this next week or so to be about our Father's business, preaching, teaching, declaring, speaking, looking for an opportunity to get an answer to the reason that the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Well, that we want to be a part of our life work. Secondly and finally, Christ has the right to demand our worship. You understand his divine prerogative. Say uh, changing your mind is a woman's prerogative. Uh, it's ultimately God's prerogative in terms of the work that He's doing. This is a perfect and holy God. Every right to possess our praise and our worship. Why? Because we belong to Him. We don't possess ultimately our possession. We don't possess ultimately our praise. We don't possess our time. Understand again and again from God's word that there is no joy without Jesus Christ. There is no greater recreation or recreation than bringing your heart to bear upon the great truths of the gospel. This is a great love letter. To merely wave palms without understanding is to miss the point of the palm. Waving palms and cheering him on with your mouth is not enough. Is not followed by the sacrifice of our lives and our bodies. In body old England, etched on the tombstone of an old cavalier soldier who lost his life and property in the battle for the royalist cause, there is this great epitaph. He served King Charles with a constant, dangerous, and expensive loyalty. And I thought about that this past week, and I thought, wouldn't that be great? If we could say, we serve the King of Kings with a constant, dangerous, and expensive loyalty, extravagant devotion to the great one. Merely letting palms is not enough. We must serve him with our full hearts. There's the ride of the king, he comes in, clearing his ownership. There is the entrance to the king, prophesied, pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah. Finally, the cry of the king, broken because they don't understand who he is. By the grace of God, we do. On this Sunday before Good Friday, Jesus declares that he didn't come to be popular. He came to set his people free. Father God, thank you for time in your word. Feed us. Challenge us. Change us, we ask. Father, we thank you for your mercies. Your word says are new to us every day. Lord God, I pray that we've taken the time to understand them, to number our blessings and count them one by one, to name them, recognize them. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, Lord, as we um, think about the coming week at work and our neighborhoods, oh Lord God, I pray that having come and seen that we would go and tell in this holy struggle, Lord. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.